Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to Right on Hollywood with Christian Toto, part of the Just the News Podcast Network. Sick of media bias infecting film reviews? Furious that too many stars insult your views? Right on Hollywood has your back. Christian is an award-winning journalist, movie critic, and founder of HollywoodInToto.com, the right take on entertainment. Now here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to Right on Hollywood, a proud member of the Just the News podcast family. This week's show is brought to you by the new Neil Young song, Teach Your Children to Obey. Well, the rise of censorship has kept me up at night. It all started last year when Amazon and a bunch of other tech giants ganged up on Parler and took it down for a while. And the issue keeps coming up and up and up. Every American should have trouble sleeping with this new reality. The latest assault on liberty, of course, involves the movement to purge Joe Rogan, the evil Joe Rogan from Spotify. Neil Young kicked off the latest attack, claiming Rogan's podcast shares dangerous misinformation and must be stopped. You know, misinformation. Like, the Hunter Biden laptop isn't real. Russian collusion is. And every third statement had of Dr. Anthony Fauci's mouth. <laughs> that kind of misinformation. Of course, now it's aging rockers who are attacking people for sharing their views and voicing their opinions and trying to kill a rare right of independent voice in the culture. Of course, the media couldn't be happier about this. They love this story. They're going to milk it and milk it. I said at the year's start that Joe Rogan was going to be the most consequential pop culture figure of 2022. I was right. I just didn't know how quickly it would happen. Now, is Joe Rogan perfect? Uh-uh. Is everything his guests say medically profound and accurate and 100% true? Probably not. Is he allowing fresh voices into the most important debates of our time? Absolutely. And that's why the system wants him gone. And by the system, I'm talking about journalists, artists, and Democrats. Not all of them, but way too many of them. And all three groups are no longer in the free speech business. It hurts to say, it hurts to admit, but it's the truth. So you got to say it, right? So my question is, where's Bruce Springsteen in all of this? Why is he not defending free speech? What about Madonna? Why the music industry's biggest names standing down when their voices are needed the most? Or they want him to be silenced as well, and they're just kind of keeping quiet. If you're a betting man, I think that's the safe play. So what happens next? We've already seen Nils Glofgren and Joni Mitchell join Young's cr crusade. 
By the time this episode's dropped, we, maybe more artists will sign up to uh, their particular cause. Now, Rogan, in the last couple of days, offered a, maybe a couple of sorts. He kind of quasi-apologized. He said he'd speak to a wider range of guests and be more sensitive to claims about misinformation. He has no idea he's bringing flowers to a virtual knife fight. He's going to learn that soon enough, though. And I have to say, good luck getting voices with, with which, <laughs> that agree with the current narratives. Because if they go on Joe Rogan's show, and they've got three hours, and Joe Rogan peppers them with tough but fair questions, they're not going to like it one bit. I don't even know if Joe Rogan's going to get that balance he's allegedly looking for. Because the Dr. Fauci's of the world will stay clear of the Joe Rogan experience. Bank on it. There's no way that doctor would be on that show and face tough questions. He won't even go on the Clay and Buck show. And that would be about 10 minutes worth his time. This would be three hours of questions he's never been asked before, and he would crumble. He'll never be on that show. So where does this leave things right now? Well, anyone who says this isn't about censorship is lying. Period. Don't believe him. Now, I think we've seen some fading stars use this whole situation to get some free publicity, and it's working. When was the last time anyone talked about Niels Lofgren? Most people don't know who he is. They still don't, probably. And yes, Spotify is technically standing by Rogan, but for how long? You get a Jay-Z, a Springsteen, or some other major talent, uh, Taylor Swift perhaps, who pulls their music out to, to, to fight against Joe Rogan? He's gone. I don't care how big that contract is. See you later. And one of the more chilling parts of the story, which has not gotten a lot of attention, is that Spotify said... They've been removing some podcasts all along that spread so-called misinformation. Says who? Today's very, very biased fact-checkers? The CDC? The people are saying that we should mask up three-year-olds? What about the New York Times? What about CNN? That's a howler, right? Who would trust CNN with a fact-check? Now, would Neil Young go on Rogan's show and have a really strong and robust debate on the subject in question? He wouldn't go a thousand yards near that studio, much like Dr. Fauci. Of course, Glenn Greenwald did weigh in this, and he has just been an absolute hero, both attacking corrupt journalism and also championing free speech. He's a liberal. God bless him. He's doing the Lord's work, man. Now, he's got a new op-ed on this particular subject. It is long, and it is worth every sentence, every syllable. I can't read it all here. I've shared it a few times on Twitter. I'm at Hollywood in Toto, if you want to find me there. So if you can Google it, you can't find it, you can just go through my past tweets. You'll definitely see it. But I want to read this one paragraph. It's a highlight, but it really kind of captures the tone of the whole piece. This is what Glenn had to say. This Disinformation term is reserved for those who question liberal pieties, not for those devoted to affirming them. That is the real functional definition of disinformation and of its little cousin, misinformation. It is not possible to disagree with liberals or see the world differently than they see it. The only two choices are unthinking submission to their dogma or acting as an agent of disinformation. Dissent does not exist to them. Any deviation from their worldview is inherently dangerous to the point that it cannot be heard. Bravo. And I want to end this particular segment getting the last word to Adam Carolla, who's been a free speech warrior through this whole, whole situation in our culture. Let's hear what he has to say. Well, basically, we've decided that there's one lane you can be in when it comes to 
COVID, and if you get outside of that lane, you need to be shut down. But I find it interesting coming from rockers and comedians and artists because their job is to push back against the man. And Neil Young should know the man isn't Joe Rogan. The man is Dr. Fauci. The man is Governor Gavin Newsom. The man is the CDC. The man is the WHO. The man is Biden. That's who the man is. You're an old rocker. You're supposed to push back against the man. You're listening to my dad's podcast. He cried like a baby watching Snoopy come home. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This week's Toto's Take is Best Worst Movie. I love this film. It's a documentary from 2009 about Troll 2, considered one of the worst movies of all time. You won't get many arguments on that. Yes, it is awful. It's just gloriously bad. The child actor in the film, Michael Stevenson, shook off the disaster to become a director for hire as an adult, not too shabby. And he directed this film, which makes it both personal and kind of profound at times, even touching. It turns out that the people behind the scenes at Troll 2 really did try to make a good movie. It just didn't turn out that way. But the film found a second life as, cult, as a cult classic because people started really appreciating it for how awful it was. They loved reciting the lines, reenacting scenes. They had gatherings. They had cult movie screenings. Some of the actors from the film would show up at these events. And just here's one of my favorite lines from the film. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable this actually made it to the screen. You can't piss on hospitality. Yes, that line exists. It's in the film. And it's even more precious when you see it on screen. But that's the joy of a really terrible movie. One made with the best of intentions, but of course the worst results. Thus that title. It's one of those Sharknado films. always left me a little bit cold. You know, they're in on the gag. It's, it's kind of a whole farce. Like, oh, look at us. We've got bad special effects and cheesy you know, sequences. And the jokes are kind of over the top. And you know, the cast is full with B-listers. Ha, 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 right? It's just not the same. The best worst movie captures everything about Troll 2 you want to see, including some of the cast members who were a little bit odd, you might want to say, and also about one of the stars here who was a dentist turned movie star, but it didn't really turn out that way. He had his moment in the limelight, but you know sometimes you can't be a star that endures, so uh, you get to see that story as well. Now, you can watch Best Movie right now. I'm sure there's lots of different video on-demand platforms that have it. You can pay a few dollars. You can rent it. You can stream it. Or you can go to Tubi. It's really turning out to be my favorite free movie streaming site. It's wonderful. It's playing there right now. Well, I wanted to introduce a new segment on Right on Hollywood. It's called Stars Gone Wild. When a celebrity goes rogue, and that happens quite a bit, or he or she tweets something so crazy, so outrageous, you got to read it at least twice to make sure it's actually happening. We'll have it here. First up, and I bet he becomes a regular here, is Ron Perlman. You may know him from Beauty and the Beast back in the day. He was the Beast, or more recently, Sons of Anarchy. I got a full, full disclosure, he was great on that show. He deserved at least one Emmy, maybe more. Never gave it to him, but sometimes life isn't fair. But now, he's the star of Don't Look Up, and he's making headlines for losing his cool in a press interview. 
Turns out he's got a pretty shockingly thin skin. You wouldn't expect that from a veteran guy, but here he is. Now, here's his reaction to film critics who have been a little bit unkind toward that film, Don't Look Up. F you and your self-importance and this self-perpetuating need to say everything bad about something just so, just so you can get some attention for something you had no idea about creating. It's corrupt, and it's sick, and it's twisted. Ron, maybe some chamomile tea, maybe a nap. You gotta calm down. Conservatives can be a little slow in the draw when it comes to pop culture, and I'm being kind. It helps explain why they didn't rally around a film that came out late last year. It's called The United States of Insanity. It's a documentary, and it follows the insane clown posse's fight against the FBI. Now, I know they dress up like clowns, and they're kind of silly and outrageous, but there's nothing really funny about the fans. The fans of the group dubbed the Juggalos being dubbed a gang by the government, the U.S. government. And these Michigan rappers didn't stand down when that happened. They took the fight to the government along with the ACLU. Remember them? Remember they used to stand up for free speech just a few years ago? They're not in the free speech game that much these days, but here they were solid, rock solid. Now the film in question talks about freedom, government overreach, and a lot of related issues. So why didn't conservatives rally around it? That seems like an absolute natural. It's a question I asked the co-director, Tom Putman. He opened up about earning the trust of his subjects, including those rappers, how the film has changed some hearts and minds already. He also shared a little bit about one of the worst gigs he ever had with none other than Paris Hilton. Now, Tom was a great sport, and he's a really good director. Not only this film, but other films he's done have been critically acclaimed. Two of them actually have a perfect score at Rotten Tomatoes. That is not easy. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tom Putnam. Congratulations on an excellent documentary, Tom. But I, I know when you're making a project like this with a documentary film, you have an idea, a plan, a, a proposal, and then you make the movie. And I'm sure as you make the movie, things change. You learn things. The narrative kind of goes in different directions because it's based on reality. You can't, you can't tweak that. I, I, tell me a little bit about how, how this particular project sort of evolved over the, from the beginning to the, the, the end product. I'm always fascinated by that. Sure. The film started a little over seven years ago. Brenna Sanchez and I both directed and produced it. We had previously made a movie called Burn about the Detroit Fire Department. And I mean, that was a year of riding around on fire trucks and chasing guys into burning buildings. It was really incredibly action-packed and rewarding experience. And we were trying to figure out, wow, how are we going to, what are we going to follow this up with that'll just be even half as exciting and also touch on larger social issues, which, you know, if you're going to spend a bunch of time on a movie, you want it to have uh, some sort of lasting Mm -hmm. impact on people. And Brenna grew up in Detroit. She'd written for a number of music magazines. So she was really familiar with Insane Clown Posse, who are the stars of our film. And I had just sort of a passing knowledge of them, probably about the same amount as most people. And she came across an article, I think in the New York Times, and was a little bit surprised to hear that they were still out doing their thing, still very Mm -hmm. successful and just cold called their offices and explained who we were. Luckily they'd seen burn. They're from Detroit and said, Hey, I think uh, we might be interested in making a documentary about you guys. And they said, can you have a film crew here tomorrow? (laughs) We're going to have a press conference at the ACLU and announce we're suing the FBI, which is the first scene in the movie. And we just sort of, jumped into it and sort of figured it out as we went the film 
the film structure really does follow our journey. Um, we also went into it thinking, okay, we'll do, we'll do kind of a quick flyby of these guys, talk about the case, where they're at. They were really interesting and be done with it. And then, you know, seven, here we are seven years later after umpteen film shoots and following not just the band and a number of the, their fans called Juggalos, but also the court case, which took so many crazy and unexpected twists and turns. We just kind of hung in there with it until we felt like we had a moment to end the, the story, at least for, at least for now. ICP is really interesting. I actually first heard about them through Howard Stern and I've kind of just generically followed their their news stories and situations. But to me, it's the Juggalos who are the heart of the film and they, they are a fascinating group of people. And I, 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 as a documentary filmmaker, you always have to gain the trust of your sources of the people you're following. And I'm sure that's a situation with ICP. But talk about that, that aspect of the story of, of getting embedded with Juggalo fans, you know, having them know that you're going to have their back and you're not going to, you know, twist a knife in them. They, they, they're, they're, I feel like they're under attack in a way in, in a lot of different ways, but share that part of the story as a filmmaker. Yeah. I, I mean, I think you would be hard pressed short of like a large terrorist organization to find a group of people who've had more bad press. Over the years <laughs> oh, than the so, you know, they're understandably really reluctant when mm-hmm. people they don't know show up and want to, talk to them. And I think that's a, one of the reasons, you know, in a way it was a curse and in a way it was a blessing to spend so much time making the movie because people really got to know us. Um, we got to spend enough time with them that they felt comfortable with us. And I think in most cases, even if juggalos were pretty wary, which for the most part they were, after they heard the questions we were asking mm-hmm. and really got to meet us, they got really comfortable. One of the things that surprised me the most making the film was, I mean, this is a group of people who gets a lot of bad press. And I think they're generally, the mainstream media likes to paint them as dangerous, degenerates, dirty, you know, drugs, and it just every, everything that like your high school guidance counselor warned you about. And one of the things that just knocked my socks off was how nice and polite everybody was. Please and thank you. Can we help you carry equipment? Um, and, you know, we'd be filming at concerts and all of a sudden there'd be like 10 lighters around us. If we needed to level the tripod head, it was really just a really lovely group of people. They call themselves a family. That's something that gets made fun of a lot in major media. But there were so many times that we saw a stranger show up to a concert or the gathering, which is their big annual festival. And, you know, somebody could show up with no money, no spare, no food, no extra clothes, no place to stay. And within five minutes, they had like 20 new friends who had hooked them up. And it, we really got treated the same way once word got out that we weren't there to just like uh, parachute in for 48 hours and do just a hatchet piece. I love that part of the story. It's really captured beautifully in the film. One of the things I wanted to get into a little bit is, you know, the topic of race is obviously a top of cultural conversation. It deserves to be there as well, of course. But I think class is 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 the story that we don't often speak about. And to me, the Juggalo fans are often less affluent. Maybe they are, their own families are a bit fractured, and they're being targeted for their fan base. It, it, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, especially after seven years of making this film and after making a film prior to this in Detroit, which certainly is a, a place that's kind of the canary in the coal mine for a lot of the socioeconomic 
challenges our country faces. I guess I would, it's my belief that the biggest divisions that we face as a society right now are based on class and income. And uh, one of the things that one of the jugglers said to us that really resonated with me that's in the film is this idea that when you get down to it, America hates poor people and juggalos are, you know, the average juggalo comes from a very rough situation and not a lot of money. And that's why the music speaks to them. And I don't think it's a coincidence that for the first time in our history, the FBI officially classified a group of fans as a gang, that that happened to probably one of the most di uh, economically disadvantaged fan bases. I mean, especially when you think about musicians like Lil Wayne, Snoop Dogg, who openly identify as gang members, their fans aren't considered a gang. And here we have a group of people that really, in as much as the FBI has a criteria, which there really isn't one, it's pretty arbitrary. Um, there would be so many fan bases just within music, let alone other groups, who would be classified ahead of them as a gang. And I think it does come down to the fact that people, I think at a certain point, want to legislate taste too. Mm -hmm. My wife teases me sometimes because I love horror movies. I just can't get enough of them. Some of them are rather, <laughs> there's a lot of blood and gore on the screen and she kind of just shakes her head. But watching your film, I thought you know, the Juggalos, I, I, some of them have personal pain and the, the, the ICP music is comically violent and over the top and outrageous and theatrical. And it seemed like maybe in a way it's a, it's a healthy release to kind of embrace that, enjoy that, luxuriate in that, and yet not let it impact your, your politeness or your kindness to others. Uh, any thoughts on, on that perspective? Yeah, I think ICP is a great example of something that I, has been a challenge in our nation. I mean, since the beginning of films, certainly since the beginning of uh, rock and roll music, which is that you can read a description of something on a piece of paper and it could sound awful and like it has no redeeming value. But when you see the execution of it, it can play very differently. You go to an ICP concert, it's a blast. It's, it's, like, it's like being in a real life version of Evil Dead and everybody's having a great time and it's cathartic and they sing about very graphic stuff. But it, there are things that for the most part, their fans have gone through and it, and it is incredibly cathartic. I think we probably do a pretty good job in the film of breaking that down. Mm -hmm. Where you get into trouble is it's the taxi driver argument with John Hinckley. And you know, you take a million of anybody and you're going to get some pretty bad, if not just uh, outright criminal people in that group. You take a million people who are fans of music like ICP that are coming from an even more disadvantaged socioeconomic background, you're going to maybe get a little higher percentage. Mm -hmm. So sure, you take a, a million of their fans, which is a huge fan base. I mean, there's what, 300 million people in America? <laughs> That's a significant portion of our country. And you're going to find a dozen, maybe more people who commit some really horrific crimes. But does that mean that you make an entire group of, do you say an entire group of people is criminal? Yeah, it's interesting. And I, this may be too glib an answer. And I don't want to get too deep into it because it's such a big topic, but I think if we live in a free society and we have free speech, that that is the, 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 the danger of it is that you will make a taxi driver movie that will entertain and challenge, but someone could find inspiration with that and, and do something dark and terrible. So I, I don't know how you 
stop from doing that. You and I had exchanged emails prior to this talk, and you had mentioned that you were a little surprised that more right-leaning uh, media outlets didn't didn't cover insanity like like you know I I did I I reviewed it right as soon as I could on my site. What can you share about? Do you think that your PR team reached out to right of center folks? Do you think they ignored it? Maybe because the content didn't match? I, I'm kind of curious about that because this is a real free speech issue. And at the moment, right of center news sites and, and pundits are very aggressive in, in that arena. It seemed like a natural fit. Yeah, I mean, I think in the same way that, you know, you can make the argument that left of center film critics have a narrow bandwidth of what they think of as acceptable storytelling. I think uh, people on the other side of the coin, right of center, uh, sometimes feel the same way. Mm -hmm. We tried to make a film, we worked really hard to make a film that didn't pick sides, that just laid out the facts of the case. You see the pros, you see the cons. Um, and that ultimately, I hope, wasn't political in its message, it was human in its message. Mm -hmm. And I think the average person that sees this feels for the jugglos. It's very clear that they're, <laughs> that it's for the most part positive. And, you know, the, the, over, the larger message is about sure freedom of speech, but I think also government accountability. And I don't know why right-wing media hasn't latched onto that. It might be because the lawsuit has gone on so long. It's spanned, you know, over uh, democratic administration and a Republican administration. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, we, I think in the media, a lot of times people want to point fingers at across the aisle, but they also don't want to look at themselves as yeah. well. And, I, and that's not a that's not a knock against the left or the right. I think that's just where we are overall as a society right now. And I'd add that I've noticed that over the years, being right of center, a lot of my peers or people who think like me, they don't get pop culture that well. They just they're they're kind of they're coming around to it more recently, and there are more people who are kind of more aware and uh, kind of processing it in a in a richer way. But I often think that they're they're behind the curve here, and I, that that may be a, a part of the problem as well. Uh, obviously, the issues you just kind of touched on, I, I don't want you to get political here, nor do I, honestly, but. I do think that there are themes in your movie that we can see in the culture at large. Any thoughts about that? Uh, is that too big a, a minefield to kind of traipse across? No, I mean, it's, I made, I made a movie about insane clown posse. I, 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 I better be able to, <laughs> to, to deal with some, some uh, unpopular subjects. Um, you know, I think there's been a lot of news this week about different books uh, being banned in schools from uh, Mouse, the graphic novel about the Holocaust, to things that are, you know, like uh, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, and I think everybody's offended by something. And I don't always agree with the ACLU, but one thing that I think they really nailed, and they're the ones that ultimately took this case on and pushed it through, was the idea that if we all get rid of speech that we're offended by, pretty soon we won't have anything left. And I certainly see a growing unwillingness among, I mean, everyone I know, depending on what subject you bring up, mm -hmm. to listen to or watch or read things that challenge their ingrained view of the world. And I don't think ICP is any different. They certainly generate a very strong reaction from yeah. everybody that hears it. 
That, that's actually a pretty I mean, strong comment. your question? Yeah, yeah. No, I think it does. But th- that's a pretty strong comment. I mean, you're a veteran, well-respected filmmaker, and I'm assuming that you may have some filmmaker friends in your circle. So uh, I'm not picking on your circle because I could, you could say the same about my, my social circle too, but it is, it's a little depressing to, to hear from a filmmaker and an artist saying that maybe other artists in his, in his you know, in his uh, reach are, are you know, uncomfortable with things that challenge them, but uh, it is it is where we are today. You would also yeah, you look, I, go ahead. I think if you look at most documentaries that are getting a large release now, they're op-ed pieces. They're they have a set agenda mm-hmm. and they're telling a story that shares that agenda with people who already agree with them. I, I don't see a lot of like traditional journalism happening, and that's that is not a knock on left wing or right wing i think it's just the state of media and how hard it is to find an audience right now Mm -hmm. so people are predisposed to try to make something that they know people are going to like and share are you do you have a a project that's in the works now you're filming it right now you're pretty prolific and you've had a lot of work behind you already but just kind of curious what's what's your next step going forward Sure. So I mentioned Burn, the Detroit firefighting documentary we made. Uh, we we kept filming a lot of those same firefighters for the past 12 years. So we have a follow-up film that's going to be out this spring called Burn X, where we spend 10 years with the Detroit Fire Department, which if you followed the news, Detroit's gone through a lot in the last decade. Mm-hmm. Um, really proud of that. And then starting a new documentary in about three weeks about paramedics around the country and what they're dealing with as um, our healthcare system really is starting to collapse and they're the last line of defense. Um, we've been spending time with people who went from 18, uh, 1,800 calls a year prior to the pandemic to 18,000 calls a year. And um, that, that's something I'm really excited about because, again, it's, it's a film where we're going to be uh, clear, clear across the socioeconomic mm-hmm. and political spectrum to just tell those human stories. I'm sure when people meet you for the first time, you tell them what they do. They're intrigued. They may have a lot of questions for you. What is it being a filmmaker, a documentary filmmaker? What would surprise most people about the work you do? Either the the kind of work, the sort of the behind the scenes efforts. The uh, I, I'm sure you're not a gazillionaire. The documentary filmmakers. It's not. It's not uh, making a Marvel movie. That the budgets are low, and the the you know even though you're very successful, it's not a. It's not like a cash cow in the Hollywood game. Right. But what, what's what would uh, be what would surprise people about the work you do? Uh, yeah, how, 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 how little money I make. I mean, I drive a $1,600 car I got from a tow yard as a repo. Uh, but, uh, I think the average person who's not like involved in documentary filmmaking, they just assume all documentary filmmakers are like Michael Moore Mm -hmm. and that they're out to, uh, I like, and I actually like Michael Moore. I like a lot of his films, but I think there's a certain gotcha mentality they assume is there, or they think that documentaries are like reality tv and it's sort of a salacious scripted setup Mm -hmm. um whereas i come from a journalism background so um i think when they see the films i make they're surprised that they're it's left up to them to make up their own minds about Mm -hmm. how they feel about the subject yeah, it's like you said, it's becoming increasingly rare that that's the uh, that's the approach taken. I think with yeah. a lot of filmmakers, especially documentary filmmakers, you do want something to happen because of your film. I, I, you know, you, you meant you're you're taking this in a very fair way. You show that some of the juggalos have done some terrible things. I think there's a good balance there. Do you think that the film has any impact, or what would you want the impact to be after people see this? Yeah, I mean, I think the film is 
starting to have an impact. We've been really lucky considering the pandemic that it got released on uh, more than 600 screens and it's out um, digitally. It's had great reviews. And I, my hope is that the Juggalos, the people it's about, are buoyed by it and see it and see that somebody who's essentially or was at least an outsider to their culture mm-hmm. saw value in it, um, which doesn't happen very often. But really, the hope is that people who would have thought they would never have anything in common with them can see some of themselves in them, can see that there's value in it, and most importantly, see that if this can happen to them, it can happen to you. If the, if a million people can be put on the gang list for being declared fans of a band that somebody didn't like, well, I live in LA. You know how many gang members wear Dodgers hats? <laughs> Um, you can talk about Raiders fans. You can talk about fans of gangster rap. Um, the criteria the FBI used to declare Juggalos a gang, which is only a three-item checklist of which the Juggalos only check off really two of the boxes. That applies to everybody, youth groups, Boy Scouts, churches, any fan base anywhere. And that seems far-fetched. But, I mean, if someone told you 10 years ago that fans of like a – two guys to dress up like clowns <laughs> would be declared a gang and put in prison. You, you wouldn't think it would be possible. Right. I'm going to end with a, relevant. I'm going to end with a gotcha question of sorts, but I think you, you asked for this one because your, your website, I was reading your bio page and it, it mentions this. It said, I've also directed Paris Hilton, which is the only shoot that still gives me nightmares. So you gotta, you gotta give me a little before we let you go. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, was not, it give was me the PG experience. version is fine. Um, I, uh, I will say that I got, uh, I did get, it, it was so bad. I got shingles uh, partway through and uh, it was about five or six years before I could tell anybody the entire story without having had like a 12 pack of beer for it. <laughs> um, it was, um, you know, it was actually a really good lesson because that's a film where I just got, I had had a movie at Sundance and had agents and a manager and everybody just sort of said, go do this. It's going to be great. And if it'll either turn out good or nobody will see it. And I was just a director for hire so I had no control over anything. The movie ultimately got um, taken away and recut by the producers. Mm-hmm. And um, the lesson I learned was I would rather make teeny tiny movies that take seven years that I can control. Because if it's if if I um, if I if I if I ultimately have a say in how the movie turns out, it tends to turn out better. I did a movie last year called The Dark Divide with David Cross and Deborah Messing, and that was the first fiction feature I had done since the Paris Hilton movie. And um, that was a great experience because I got to I got to do my thing on it. Mm-hmm. So I think the lesson is just about sort of being persistent and knowing that uh, control to tell the story that you want is more important than budget or time or stars or anything else. Excellent. Well, lesson learned. But uh, Tom, That's thank a you. Super tactful answer. <laughs> it is. A You've got it. You could be a diplomat. <laughs> Tom, I appreciate you spending some time with Writer on Hollywood. You can see Tom's excellent and timely film, The United States of Insanity, right now on Apple TV, Google Play, Vudu, and of course other video platforms as well. Or just go to icpmovie.com. You'll have all the information you need right there. Tom, I, I'm flattered you're on the show. You've got such a background. You, you're a great filmmaker. So. Keep up the good work, and maybe you can call back again when after that 12-pack we'll hear even more about that story. Sounds good. Maybe. I think I'm down to six, maybe six. <laughs> six and I, I can tell you the whole story. Excellent. Thanks, Tom.
VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to Right on Hollywood, part of the Just the News podcasting network. Now, in case I haven't mentioned it in a few hours, my new book, Virtue Bombs, How Hollywood Got Woke and Lost Its Soul, is available right now. I'll go pick it up and tell a friend. We can help fix Hollywood. It's not too late, but boy, sometimes it feels it's awful close. Everyone stay happy and well, and we'll do it all again next week without those masks. Thanks for listening to the Right on Hollywood podcast, part of the Just the News Network. We'd love to hear from you about the show. You can email... Christian at HollywoodandToto.com. And please don't forget to rate and review us at Apple Podcasts. Five-star reviews make our day. But just speak from the heart. Free speech matters more than ever. Ever.